Valentine's Day isn't until Thursday, but when you think about it, every day is Valentine's Day when you're a presidential candidate. After all, you spend a lot of time trying to court voters. You want them to love you. I can envision the inscription on the greeting card, Be my Valentine, vote for me. Good morning, I'm George Boldarki. On this morning cityscape, love and politics. First, the politics. We hit the streets of New York City to find out what people are most concerned about during this busy presidential election season. My name is Emo Erickson, and I live here in New York City. Hunger, homelessness, Medicaid, Medicare, health programs. Those are internal issues that sorely in our great cities must be addressed. My name is Srirekha Chakravarti. I'm from India. I think the biggest issue is economy. They have to find a way to avert recession. Though it seems imminent, they have to see that the poor don't get sucked into it too much. My name is Leroy Taberzi. I'm from New Rochelle, New York. I majored in economics in college. I can see that we're going back to the 30s. There's going to be another depression and another world war, I'm sorry to say. The history repeats itself. I'm Marion Sherrod. I'm visiting New York from Bermuda. We have a saying in Bermuda that if the United States uh, sneezes, we get pneumonia. So we're very concerned about the American economy. We want to see it strengthened, take some money away from the war effort, and put it into the American people. My name is Shante Walden. I'm from the Bronx. I think health care is one of the most important issues. So many people are having problems with it, and but yet we are the richest, like one of the richest countries. My name is Peter Haggis from Toronto, Canada. We're spoiled in Canada and we have free health care and I feel sorry for a lot of people here that don't have that advantage as us. That would be, I guess, one of the main concerns plus the Iraq war. I think uh, it's a waste of, uh, of human lives. I'm Barry Goldman and I'm from right here in New York City. Hopefully a strong leader will emerge. I think the country right now is lacking the leadership. I don't know if that's something that all of you uh, will agree on or not, but certainly I think we could do better. From Park Slope to Pelham Bay, College Point to Chelsea, New York City voters went to the polls this week to vote in the Super Tuesday races. With us now to talk about the results is John Molenkoff. He's the director of the Center for Urban Research at the CUNY Graduate Center. John, good morning. Good morning. Anything surprise you about how things played out Tuesday? I was very glad to see both high levels of activism among supporters of Barack Obama, but as well that our senator managed to come away with a victory in the primary in New York State. I guess no big surprise that Hillary Clinton won her adopted home state of New York. She even won New York City. But there was some speculation that she could lose in the five boroughs. Barack Obama made a big last-minute push, especially in Harlem and parts of Brooklyn. People are talking a lot about the surge of support for Obama and the closing of the race, which, which definitely is happening across the country. Um, but I was also impressed by the way the Clinton campaign managed to hold on, even in the face of uh, the sort of viral marketing of the YouTube clip that, uh, with the Black Eyed Peas singing along to Senator Obama's speech, which evidently was viewed by undoubtedly tens or hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers in the past couple of days. 
Barack Obama has clearly brought out a lot of young voters to the polls. Do you think that young people here in the New York City are as enthusiastic as those elsewhere in the country? Yes, definitely. It's great to have young people enthused about politics. It reminds me of earlier periods when some of us got excited about Gene McCarthy or or Bobby Kennedy. What else do we know about the people who headed to the polls on Tuesday here in New York City, whether we're talking about Latino voters, women voters, etc.? African-American voters were probably nine out of ten of them supporting uh, Senator Obama. Probably two out of three Hispanic voters supported Senator Clinton. There were also age and or generational and, and gender differences that that young people were more likely to support Obama and older people more likely to support Clinton. There probably also was about a seven or eight point um, gender gap in terms of uh, women being more supportive of of Senator Clinton. And in New York City, the registration base is is more preponderantly uh, female than male. It's about um, 56% to 44% uh, in overall Uh, registration in the Democratic uh, electorate in New York City. On the Republican side of things, John McCain won New York. What do you think folks here think of him? We have a history of supporting independent, reform-minded Republicans who are not social conservatives. Uh, Look at Rudy Giuliani, look at Mayor Bloomberg. Um, We're an enormously Democratic city that's decided to support Republican mayoral candidates in in the last few mayoral elections. So um, it's not at all surprising that to me that uh, Senator McCain did so well here. Speaking of Rudy Giuliani, do you agree with the folks who say that the former mayor's presidential campaign was bound to fail? I was always skeptical about it because so much of the Republican Party is based in the Christian, Protestant, um, conservative, and evangelical uh, constituencies around the country, and here we have a, you know, a, a divorced uh, Catholic from New York City that wouldn't seem to fit well with that uh, constituency base. But in talking to people around the country, it was clear that he had won a tremendous amount of respect for what he did after in the wake of 9/11 and how he pulled the city together and and was a, an important spokesman for the country as a whole. So he went into the race with a lot more goodwill, maybe, than I at first thought he might have, but uh, his opponents did seem to do a good job in whittling that away over time. But if he had been the nominee, he would have brought some strength. If you think about who the Reagan Democrats are around the country, they're, they're sort of white ethnics from Catholic backgrounds, and Rudy Giuliani would have, would have spoken very strongly to them. What do you think might be next for him? I would suppose if McCain becomes president, that Rudy Giuliani could be heading the Justice Department or something of that sort. Otherwise, I guess he'll just go back to his uh, his business pursuits. I read one article this morning that speculated that he could possibly run for governor of New York against Elliot Spitzer, should Elliot Spitzer seek re-election. Certainly that's a possibility, but Spitzer has a ways to go before he has to run again, and I think all politicians learn how to recover from having bad spells, and in a few years when the election cycle rolls around again, I'm, I'm confident that Governor Spitzer will have recovered a good bit from his recent difficulties and, and maybe not be so obvious a person to run against as he might have been in 
few months ago. Let me get this next question out of the way, Mayor Bloomberg. Will he or won't he? I mean, clearly he has repeatedly said he has no plans to run for president. The media has kept that possibility alive for a long time. Do you think we can finally put that talk to rest? I don't think it will be finally put to rest until we know who the candidates on both sides uh, are for the major parties. And Mayor Bloomberg will try to ask himself, is there a big enough hole in the middle between the two parties? Uh, If it's Huckabee on one side, not that I think that it would be, but in case that happened, that would be uh, opening a space in the middle right, and um, perhaps Obama would be considered to be part of the reform wing of the Democratic Party. And if he thought that there was a big enough space in the middle, uh, after all is said and done, he might do it. I think, though, that the chances of that space being there are not great. I mean, the parties do tend to converge in the middle over time, and the history of third-party candidates for president has not been very auspicious for people who would actually like to win the election. So, And I, I don't see the mayor spending hundreds of millions of dollars just on a rhetorical exercise. So in the end, I don't think it will happen. Let me ask you about the issues in this presidential race. What do you think New Yorkers care about most? Certainly the economy and the war continue to be at the top of people's concerns. We're racking up record budget deficits to finance the war, and that makes for uh, stresses in the economy and a weak, weak dollar and a lot of borrowing. I think people definitely feel that we've been on the wrong track for quite some time. Um... So getting the country to be a leader in the world once more is something a vast majority of the electorate would like to see. Do you think any particular candidate here would be better for New York? I happen to be a Clinton supporter, so maybe my views are not unbiased, but uh, it seems to me that Senator Clinton does have a very strong record both on the economy and on foreign affairs and, and defense and security on the Armed Services Committee, and of course is deeply engaged and involved with so many constituencies in New York. So obviously she would be a great president for, for New York City residents and New York State residents. Senator Obama also thinks a lot about urban issues and urban revitalization when it was a community organizer uh, in an earlier phase of his career, and he, I think he too would adopt a lot of policy responses that would be Um, very, very positive for people in New York City. Bottom line, though, it's all very exciting and very exciting to see that it will continue beyond Super Tuesday. Both Obama supporters and Clinton supporters will be necessary for the Democrats to win the election. So it's really incumbent on both of them, I think, to uh, not let things polarize to the degree that one side is so mad at the other that they don't end up supporting the Do you think that we could see an Obama-Clinton ticket or vice versa? I think we could see a a Clinton-Obama ticket. I'm not so sure that Senator Clinton would take the vice presidency. John Mollenkoff, you are the director of the Center for Urban Research at the CUNY Graduate Center. A real pleasure to be with you, George. Democrat Hillary Clinton won strong support from Latino voters in this week's Super Tuesday races, but Barack Obama is working hard to win over Hispanic voters. Joining me on the phone now is the editor-in-chief of the Spanish-language newspaper El Diario, Alberto Vervolias Bush. Alberto, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Let me first of all ask you about your name, Vervolias Bush. Where does the Bush come from? 
Well, I, within the Spanish tradition, when one uses both one's father's last name, that, that would be Vorvolius, and one's mother's last name, that would be Bush. No relation to the Bushes in the White House. That's correct, and that's, that's a question I get a lot. Um, in fact, Fidel Castro asked me if I was any relation to them. But no, my answer was, what, there are other Bushes out there? I mean, <laughs> Very tongue-in-cheek, of course. Let's talk about the issues at hand here as far as Latino voters in New York City. A lot of them went to the polls this past week. It was indeed the first time uh, in the history of sort of like the primary system that uh, Hispanic voters, the states in which the vast majority of Hispanics in the United States live, were early enough in the process for it really to be a horse race. What issues do you think are bringing people out? We did some polling of Hispanic voters, and we found that the top three issues were the economy, immigration, and the war in Iraq. As far as those issues are concerned, who do they like representing them? On issues like immigration and the war in Iraq, uh, generally Hispanic voters tell us their positions uh, tend to be closer to those of the Democratic Party than those of the Republican Party. And in fact, there are a great number of uh, conservative Hispanics, self-denominated conservative Hispanics, who, because of uh, the Republican debate on Iraq, they are looking seriously at voting Democratic. Barack Obama, of course, is a strong advocate of withdrawing troops from Iraq, quick to point out that he's been against the war from the very beginning, points out that Hillary Clinton voted for the war. So why then do you think that so many Latino voters are backing Clinton? Clinton has the best name recognition among Hispanic voters. In addition to that, Senator Clinton has received the support of probably the most popular Latino elected officials in the country. When we look at the issue of immigration, clearly Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama have similar views. But on the Republican side, Latinos also have a friend in John McCain, so to speak. Yes, in fact, the Hispanic vote in Florida, the Hispanic vote for John McCain, really was decisive. McCain's front-runner status may well have been the result of the fact that uh, Florida Hispanic voters on the Republican side voted for him strongly. Do you think that Latinos as a whole are aware of how significant their voice is and can be leading forward in this election? We saw spikes in terms of uh, citizenship requests and naturalization requests. Now we've seen increase in terms of registration for voting, and we see higher participation levels in terms of the primary. So as we move along the process, we find that uh, Latinos and Latino voters are more and more aware and involved in the electoral process. I would expect this to continue as we go along. Alberto, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Alberto Vervulius Bush is the editor-in-chief of the Spanish-language newspaper El Diario. You must remember this A kiss is still a kiss A is just a this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Our theme this morning is love and politics. Politicians spend a lot of time kissing babies on the campaign trail, but there's little skill involved in that puckering up. Coming up next on Cityscape, the politics of kissing. We'll talk to the author of an entire book on lip locking. The world will always welcome love. As time
With me now on Cityscape is Andrea Demersion. She's the author of Kissing, Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About One of Life's Sweetest Pleasures. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. What made you write a book about kissing? It was inspired by an amazing kiss. It was just some crazy night out, and uh, I was seated next to a man at a dinner party, and I hadn't had a good kiss in a long time. And before the evening was up, I was literally sitting on my hands to keep myself from touching him under the table. I wanted to kiss him so bad. So it was one of those sort of, you know, out of nowhere, random intersections, some amazing man. And we had an amazing kiss that night, and it just sort of reawakened my spirit. What makes a good kiss, do you think? Chemistry, obviously, is a key one. You really need to be drawn to that person. There needs to be some sort of connection, that intangible thing that you really can't sort of define, but it's there in the air. Sometimes it's even palpable to others around you. And then, you know, you have to have the right frame of mind. I'm always telling people that kissing really starts sort of in the head. You have to be relaxed. You have to be receptive. Sometimes we're feeling grouchy. Sometimes we're stressed out. And the reality is a kiss is the best thing for what ails you. It's sort of like a magic elixir. And I, in particular, I tell women when they say that they're not in the mood or if they have a headache, actually a kiss will help them with that headache. Forget the Advil. If you can have a kiss, the kiss will relax you. It'll get all the good endorphins going. It'll sort of relax your circulation system, your respiratory system. You'll start breathing easier. It's sort of like uh, getting into a Zen state from yoga, but just through kissing. What about setting? where you kiss. Does that make a difference? Sure. I mean, you know, there's obviously the kind of cozy, comfortable kissing in a comfy nook, whether it's at home on a couch or in your bedroom on a window seat or, you know, outdoor on a, on a park bench or in a, in a lovely restaurant. I always tell people to try to get a corner table or a booth because it's a nice little nook to be comfortable in and do a little canoodling in. We should say that you interviewed a number of women and men yes. about kissing. Yes. I really, I, you know, obviously, you know, writing a book really kind of for women, I want to speak to other women and let their thoughts resonate with the readers. But I thought, thought it was important to get the guy's perspective and share that with women. And I was really happy with their responses in the sense that their sensibilities about kissing were in many ways equally romantic and sensitive as sweet and women because I think a lot of times women think, oh, guys just want to kiss because they want you know what, and they're not thinking about kissing in the same sort of lovely romantic way we are, but they do. Is there such a thing as kissing too early in a relationship? I do get asked the question, when when should you kiss for the first time? And I think you really just need to trust your instincts on that. Can that first kiss, do you think, make or break the relationship? Um, For many, yes. Kissing is the barometer for what they equate sort of their connubial bliss with that person. And kissing uh, does tell you a lot about a person's personality and whether or not you two are really simpatico in that way. I had always been amongst the school of thought that if you kiss a guy and it, it, it's not working for you, you know, quickly move on. You know, I mean, that doesn't mean to say you can't like them as an individual and this and that and maybe want to be their friend. But as it relates to pursuing a romantic relationship, just, you know, cut and go. Uh, that sounds kind of harsh, but a lot of women feel the same way. And I think to a degree men men might feel that way too. But what I'm also through the course of writing the book and researching and talking to people, I've come to a more enlightened view about that and feeling that, you know, you need to give something a chance. Uh, Sometimes when you first kiss someone, maybe they're a little bit nervous, maybe you're a little bit nervous, you haven't found your kissing groove. And so, you know, maybe you can have fun working on it and hope that you find some sort of rhythm that works well for you too. You used the term, Andrea, just a few minutes ago, canoodling. Canoodling, yeah. 
That so. is one of many ways you can refer to a kiss. You've counted more than 80 ways to refer to a kiss. Well, you know, I went uh, went very basically just to a dictionary to see uh, and then to a thesaurus to see all these different terms for kissing. And, you know, there were a number of them. Some of them I'd never heard these words. For instance, the word snogging is the uh, the British way of saying kissing. It's the Queen's English for, for a kiss. Uh, and then something like canoodling. There's something very yummy about that word. You can just sort of see it and feel it. It has that, that sort of sensibility about it osculating, which is from the Latin term to osculate. That sounds like something more than kissing is yeah. going on. <laughs> so I always say, oh, you know, watch that high-octane osculating. Keep that high-octane osculating for your, your private quarters. It's also interesting how kissing pretty much takes place everywhere, with the exception of some places. You found some places in this world where kissing is off limits. Well, anthropologists and sociologists say about 90% of the world kisses. Kisses in the way that we think about kissing here in the West or in our world. But there are places still today where kissing is just completely doesn't happen. Uh, there are places uh, in specifically in Nepal and the Himalayas where the Nepalese don't kiss because they feel that the mouth is really full of bacteria and germs, which it is. There are, you know, over 270 colonies of bacteria in the mouth, which can get a little bit fuchi when you think about it. I've also read some things more recently where there's a lot more bacteria than 270 uh, colonies of germs. But So the Nepalese don't kiss on the mouth. They don't believe in it. Then there's still some cultures, believe it or not, places where there's a superstition about kissing, which is age-old. And that is that your mouth is the portal to your soul. So a kiss could either invite in germs and death or pestilence, or a kiss could steal your soul out of you. So mainly places in, in the Sudan and places in Africa still, or maybe even in far-reaching places in the South Pacific where their the cultures are still a little bit more primitive. But it's really such a small percent of the population. There are, however, cultures where kissing is not allowed, certainly in public, uh, any public display of affection is forbidden, and it can be punished. Indonesia and, is one of those places. Yeah, uh, and, you know, so that's, you know, I mean, you know, public display of affection, you know, you think walking, holding your honey's hand or just offering them a sweet kiss while you're on the, on a sunny sidewalk shouldn't be an issue, but in, in various places around the world, uh, it's not allowed. You can be thrown in jail. You can be uh, fined. There are even places in Turkey, for example, interestingly enough, uh, you can't uh, text or SMS, you know, the word kiss. It's not allowed. And, you know, places like that where the government controls companies like the uh, the uh, cellular service, they can manage that, which is really kind of fascinating, actually, if you think about it. Ancient India had a big role to play in the way we kiss today, didn't it? Ancient India is credited for romantic kissing the way we know it because they were the culture that wrote about it. They were the first culture that literally put it down in uh, in their Sanskrit texts. There could have been other ancient cultures who were also kissing the way we did, but they weren't writing it. They weren't recording it in their history. So either they weren't doing it or it wasn't considered so important that they wanted to you know, place their stamp on it. But ancient India, which is also where the Kama Sutra came from, but ancient India, as far back as I think about 1500 B.C., they were writing in the Sanskrit texts uh, things about lovers mouth on mouth and, you know, quivering lip. And from that, uh, anthropologists have said they're writing about kissing. And then in uh, somewhere, it's a kind of a wide range between the 3rd and 6th century, uh, the Kama Sutra was written. 
And a lot of people think of the Kama Sutra as being this definitive lovemaking manual. And that is a big part of it. But really what the Kama Sutra is, it's, it's like a how-to book for a young bachelor boy. And um, when you think about there's so many how-to books out, out in the world today and to think that India was writing a, a how-to book back, in, back when is, I think, actually kind of amusing. But what this book was doing was trying to show a young man a range of things from how to make love and please a woman, which was an important thing to be able to do, to how to dress properly, how to keep himself well-groomed so that when he was out with a young lady, he smelled good, he looked nice, how to arrange his home, how to be well-versed in subjects like astronomy and art and music so he could talk to this young lady about something lovely. Um, and it also uh, details quite a bit about kissing. There are about 17 different kisses in the Kama Sutra for a young man to try to perfect for, to please a young lady. And certainly a lot of variety there, you know, and kisses for the different times of the day or in the evening and the morning. It's just kind of fun. The term French kissing did not come from France. No, you know, it's so funny. That term was coined by Americans in the in the 1920s, shortly after World War I. America still even today, I mean, you know, we tend to be a little bit prissier about things than, than the French. But back in the day in particular, anything that was risque or overtly provocative, uh, Americans started referring to as being French because having had the experience of being with the French in World War I, they thought that the French were just so, like, over the top because they are they're very passionate. They're very open. They're very relaxed about their lovemaking. So, you know, the Americans started terming a kiss with tongue as French kissing because they thought that was just, just, just so over the top. I mean, the French don't call it French kissing. They just call the, the official term for kissing with tongue is, you know, deep kissing or soul kissing. Do most people kiss with their eyes closed, do you think? Yes, actually, most people do kiss with their eyes closed, in part because it can, you know, be a little bit distracting to keep your eyes open and, you know, could make people a little bit dizzy, you know, to have to keep your eyes open and see someone's face right there. I think that a lot of people will uh, keep their eyes closed mostly, but sometimes will open their eyes to see what the other person is doing, to see if their eyes are closed, see if they're enjoying it. We also have this amazing ability, you write about this, that we can find each other's lips in the dark. Yeah. It's, you know, it's sort of like the way our bodies are wired. We instinctively know where the mouth is. Everything you ever wanted to know about one of life's sweetest pleasures, kissing. Andrea Demersion, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. It was great. New York City is full of romantic places to smooch. There's Central Park, the top of the Empire State Building, the Brooklyn Promenade. But in case you didn't know, love is in the air at the Bronx Zoo. Assistant Curator of Mammals David Powell fills us in. This time of year is a snow leopard breeding season. Uh, February is actually the peak breeding time for them. Now, you have a snow leopard here from Pakistan that is ready to mate. We have this male, Leo, who came to us uh, from Pakistan last year. Um, but he is paired with a young female right now. We're seeing how they're getting along. This would be a pretty early age for breeding, but, you know, you never know. Fingers are crossed. Are most of the animals here monogamous? Well, among mammals, monogamy is actually the rarity. It's not a very common mating system for mammals. In most cases, males breed multiple females. Are there any animals here 
that are monogamous? There are a lot of our marmosets and tamarins, which are small monkeys from uh, uh, Central and South America. They live in monogamous groups and, and pair bond that way. What would you say is the most unusual mating ritual here at the zoo? Well, certainly one of the more um, active mating and courtship rituals we have here is in our Indian rhinos, where the courtship is actually quite vigorous and aggressive and uh, involves a lot of chasing and and threatening, and then they, the, the rhinos will breed. And the other part that's interesting about that is they almost always only breed at night. What attracts the animals to each other? I mean, if you introduce one female lion to another, what would make the other lions, you know what, not so interested? <laughs> it's hard to say. We certainly do uh, sometimes run across cases with mammals where they just aren't compatible. Um, you know, animals uh, choose their mates based sometimes on characteristics that we understand and sometimes on characteristics that we don't. What are some of the things that you do know, that you do understand about the attraction? For example, in the rhinos, like we talked about, those females will really only be interested in breeding after they've had that vigorous kind of physical activity and being chased around and pursued, whereas with some of the carnivores, it's a little bit more relaxed, and and a male that comes across as being very aggressive and potentially dangerous is not going to find a lot of uh, acceptance from the female. She'll be more defensive as opposed to ready to breed. So I guess there is some truth to the old term animal attraction? There certainly is truth to to animal attraction. Um, I think it's always operating. And here in the zoo, sometimes we can take advantage of that. And other times we have to think a little bit about it and let the animals lead us into it. David Powell is an assistant curator of mammals at the Bronx Zoo. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to Rashida Winfield, our producer. Have a great weekend and... Yeah.